Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hi, everyone. Um, and thank you so much for coming to this event on Black Lives Matter and the left. Um, obviously, this has been a huge year for Black Lives Matter and anti-racist movements, particularly in North America and Europe. Um, in the middle of a pandemic that has disproportionately been killing black and brown people around the world, we've seen the rise of a young multiracial movement surfacing to highlight another pandemic, which is structural racism and racialized violence. And we also um, in the UK have seen the rise of a populist conservative government. And across the pond, we are approaching an election where black working class people are being asked to choose between, to paraphrase, to paraphrase Joe Biden himself, um, being shot in the heart or shot in the leg. So electoral movements from the left seem to have really failed as well to anticipate, as has often been the case, the political energy and the dissent that lies within working class black communities and communities of color. And this session asks, uh, is it possible to build meaningful coalitions between anti-racist movements like Black Lives Matter and the electoral left? And speakers from the USA and the UK are gonna consider some of the lessons that have been learned in the last few months since the killing of George Floyd um, to try and explore what a fruitful relationship between a mass movement and legislative politics might look like. So to address these questions, we have an absolutely amazing panel. Um, we've got Bianca Cunningham, who is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. We have Gargi Bhattacharya, who is a professor of sociology and co-director of the Centre for Migration, Refugees and Belonging at the University of East London. Um, and she's also written um, a great book recently called Rethinking Racial Capitalism, which for anyone interested in these kind of questions, I would really recommend having a read. Um, and Annie Aluluku Tariba, who is a writer and independent researcher based in London, who is the organizer of another recommend, massive recommendation, um, the Black As In Revolution YouTube series. Um, so just an apology in advance that Nalini Stamp was meant to be our fourth panelist but was unable to make it because she's caught up in some uh, fray that is happening in Kentucky that I'm sure we will find out about soon. Um, so the way that the event is gonna work is we're gonna have some opening remarks from the panelists um, for about 10 minutes each. Then I'll warm everyone up with some questions and then open it up to the floor for some questions for our, for our speakers. And also feel free to write some questions in the chat as you go along and I'll gather them. So if anything pops up in your head as the speakers are talking, just pop them in there and I will make sure to pick them up for the Q&A session. So um, we're going to start with Bianca first. Um, is I'm not used to chairing events on, um, on, there we go, yay. Um, so yeah, Bianca, would you like to go ahead?
okay, so Bianca is um, is on mute. So we're just going to try and get hold of her um, in order to see if we can get her attention to come back off mute. So I think, shall we go, shall we start with Gargi then instead? If that's, if Gargi, are you ready to go or? And we're also going to be swapping out um, interpreters as well. Oh, okay. No, we have Bianca left. Bianca's back. <laughs> so embarrassing. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, no. I Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Akbar, for translation. Thank you, Ali, from before. My name is Bianca Cunningham, as Dahlia said. Um, I am a member and a spokesperson for Democratic Socialists of America. I'm also a labor organizer. That's how I come to the movement. Um, through labor struggles um, and a community organizer based out of Brooklyn, New York. I mostly am going to address the topic um, through, or all, <laughs> I'm gonna address the topic through a USA context. And so um, I'm so grateful that this conversation is happening. We have so much to learn from one another between the USA and the UK. Um, I'm always learning so much from people who are just in different places to, than me and the United States, whether they be in the South or the Midwest, we all are coming to this through different contexts. And so it's really important that we build um, these connections and relationships. So thank you for having me, first of all. I wanted to address the first question, which is, uh, I believe, can movements like BLM uh, build meaningful coalitions with the electoral left? Um, so I want to say that obviously I think that's possible. That's happening for sure in the USA, in the USA, where mostly on a local level, where we've been able to successfully run Black Lives Matter activists um, for office, most recently Cori Bush um, in Missouri. It's a great example of that. But there are also other examples like Jabari Brisport, um, Khalid Kamau, who was the first openly democratic socialist um, BLM organizer to be elected to office three years ago to city council. Um, in Georgia. And so we know that this works. And I, I know Nalini's not with us, but I really want to shout Nalini Stamp out for all her amazing work with the WFP. Obviously, they've been building those coalitions in the direction that they're taking the WFP to be Black-led, to be, you know, lockstep with the movement for Black lives, and to really address this question of electoralism from a purely, like, working class, uh, Black and Brown context is so important. And so shout out to her for being awesome and doing that amazing work throughout the years. I also just want to say that it kind of bothers me, the question, because it... Uh, goes with the, the thinking that these things need to be separate. I actually think that our electoral left, if that's what we claim to be uh, building, needs to be anti-racist um, and it needs to be an arm of the movement for black lives. It needs to be an arm of the movement. It's one way in which we can um, affect change. And so what does it look like for an electoral movement to be anti-racist? I think, first of all, it's finding candidates who are speaking to the material conditions of people in black and brown working class communities. And so people who are willing to take on the really polarizing issues, such as defund the police, um, you know, willing to have the budget fights to have fully funded education and healthcare, et cetera. But it's also finding people within those communities, like nurses and teachers and bartenders to run. Um, I can't tell you my experience in Democratic Socialism in America in New York City is that from the very beginning, our whole thing has been, let's find the person who nobody else would give a second look to, who everybody would say doesn't have the experience, but what are the, like, what are the contents of their character and their heart? 
And if they're with us on the issues, we're going to run them and we're going to give them the tools that they need to be successful. And so I just feel like more of that needs to happen um, on so many different levels. Uh, and and so I hope that 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 work continues to happen. I'm more uh, interested today in talking about the lessons that I've personally learned um, through my organizing since the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and so many others um, that we can't even name. Um, and so I think one of the lessons that I've learned is that our messaging is working. Many of us were involved in the you know. Bernie Sanders campaign or the Elizabeth Warren campaign, you know, these were progressive campaigns that were mostly anti-capitalist who were calling out, you know, the targets and, and saying like, who, who are these people that have the power to change the type of society that we live in? Who, you know, where are they and how can we find them, right? Um, and so I think our messaging is super effective. People like coming out of the streets are talking through an anti-capitalist lens, which is amazing. I remember one example of marching with some young people, right whenever the protests was starting, like the second day, and us getting to across the Brooklyn Bridge into the city of Manhattan, where there's a lot of shops, and a young organizer turning to everybody and saying, okay, y'all, so it's corporations only, and we're gonna like express our outrage, um, right? And we're gonna protest, but we're going after corporations. Leave the small businesses alone. This is about confronting state power. This is about confronting corporate and consolidated power and the clarity to which the messages were coming from young people who had never been politically active before was just so striking to me. I really do think our message um, is working. And I also say another thing that I think is working is distinguishing ourselves as a left electoral politics from the Democrats. You know, when we first started doing this years ago, we were pointed out as being, you know, contrarian, pointed out, uh, you know, as trying to sow discord in the party, trying to, you know, just blow everything up. But, you know, what we've really seen is that, you know, from everyday people, you know, there's so much distrust from politicians, from government, from these institutions. And so it's really important that we say it's not enough that we're just talking about conservatives um, and, the, and the Republicans, right? But then we also need to address the Democrats and how they sold their soul to corporations and how they haven't done very much for working people either and really present a clear alternative that's separate. And it's really hard for us to do because we're taking the position that we can you know, reform the system from the inside out. And so it's a daily struggle, I feel like, in a line that we need to toe every single day, but it is really important. I think it has been really effective um, so far. Uh, one of the second lessons I learned is that it's not an either or, or with electoral politics or movement making, you can do both effectively. And so Nalini and I were both um, convening org organizers for Occupy City Hall, New York City. We occupied the city hall park in front of our city hall where the lawmakers um, have the power to pass a budget that defunds the police. And so we occupied the space to make that demand and it lasted for nine days. Um, and one of the things that we were able to do is to connect people who were on the streets for the very first time, really upset, coming with all their trauma, coming with all their righteous anger, coming with all their outrage and saying, hey, look, you know, we can, address you know your trauma your outrage and do teach-ins but we're also going to teach you who the targets are and like why it's important so like yeah you want to confront the police at three o'clock in the morning right when we're in this occupation that's amazing let's take that energy to like the council person's house let's take that energy to the mayor's house let's take that energy and, and, and really use it in a strategic way. And I think that's you know one of the ways that we were able to connect the two. The other thing I would say is that 
it was really transformational for me to see thousands of people convene and occupy a space for the amount of time that it did. So many amazing networks and infrastructure and mutual aid came from that space. Um, but I would also say one of the most striking moments that I'll never forget is us being able to project the city council meeting. They thought they were gonna hide on a Zoom call. Um, most people wouldn't get on the Zoom. Well, we uh, projected the Zoom in the park. Hundreds of people watching it as if it was a ball game, cheering, booing, learning the players, learning the things and the reasons that they didn't wanna defund the police or why they were in favor, seeing the faces, that was such a transformational moment. And I think it's a way to bring everyday people into politics, make it interesting when it has stakes, when it feels like we're actually experiencing our own power. And that's really important as well. Um, the third thing I would say is that we should talk about the limits of electoral politics. One of the things that happened in the very first uh, start of the summer when the protest started, as I remember, you know, we had just came off of a primary here in the United States. And so, you know, there was a contentious primary being held and there were messages being put out in electoral, you know, people in electoral politics um, were doing the work and being out on the street and having these rallies and trying to get their message across. Well, what we saw with the protests is that the streets started to talk. And those same amazing legislators like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar honestly said, like, we're nothing without the movement that drives us. And we tried to warn you and talk about a platform that actually addresses issues that people care about and that there's actually a lot of support for this on the ground. And you didn't, you weren't responsive to that. So now what you have to do with is people on the streets. And now you have to answer to that. And I think that's really powerful. Um, those things need to come together. And we also need to understand, like, the limits of, like, what electoral politics can even do, um, you know, like they can't hold the police accountable in the same way that we haven't been able to really hold the police accountable. You know, I can't talk about how much, how many campaigns I've been a part of that were pushing some seemingly well-meaning piece of police reform, right? Um, something that we felt we had to work years for, um, but then you get it passed and the lawmakers pass it and the cops just take you to court. I mean, we're in court right now with the NYPD every time we pass a law that seems amazing, right? That's a police reform that takes us in the step towards abolition or towards taking away the power and the money of the police department. All they do is take us to court and then choose not to you know, enforce the mandate. And so, you know, we really do have our work cut out for us and we really do need to talk about the limits of, you know, electoral politics, I feel like in, in, the, in the greater context. Um, the third thing I learned is about infrastructure. I, of course, mentioned like all of the amazing infrastructure that popped off from Occupy City Hall. Um, you know, we had the People's Bodega where you could go get, you know, sanitary items, PPE, masks, gloves, cigarettes, you, you know, a charger, you name it, you could get it. We had food, we were feeding thousands of people three meals a day, you know, um, it really became a mutual aid space, right? Where people who had been displaced recently or who were without housing, secure housing, were coming because they felt safe to be part of a community where they were gonna be well-fed, cared for, you know, there was mental health professionals on deck. We had clothing, we had, you know, materials to build, you know, forts and, you know, protect yourself from the elements of outside. It was a really important space. And I've seen so many mutual aid networks pop up, um, you know, throughout the country and small spaces. Also, you know, shout out to AOC and Jabari. They did an amazing webinar last week about building a childcare collective. I think that if you try to, you know, um, Think about what it looks like to replace these institutions that we think are, or you know, that we know oppress us, 
you know, that is really the hard work. And so shout out to all the mutual aid, shout out to all the collective, you know, advisation that's happening, that's amazing, but also it's just not enough. Because when people start to say, okay, I kind of agree with you, defund the police. I kind of agree with you, abolition, there's something to that. But then what are we gonna do? What What are the institutions that we're gonna use to fill? What are we going to build? And that is in a lot of ways a much harder question, right? But we need to do more of that. We need infrastructure. The left is very small. One of the things that we just realized is as inspiring it is that everybody's been out in the streets and you know this is the longest and largest protest in the United States history. It's amazing. We're still really small, y'all. And we haven't even convinced everybody that's supposedly on our side that you know it's a good thing to defund the police. It's a good thing to have abolition, that we should be leading and building coalition with in BLM and, and with other um, black and brown led led organizations. And so that's not even a given in the left right now, and it needs to be. And so we need to have those conversations with each other, but more importantly, we need to figure out how to bring new blood, new energy, and new people in. And I feel like that's always a challenge, building that infrastructure that really matters. And the fourth thing I'll say to that infrastructure question is that abolition is messy. One of the things you know that we learned really quickly is that you know bringing thousands of people together in a space and calling it a police-free zone is messy work. Abolition is messy work. It's about creating something different. And it really actually is cultural work. Um, it's not enough. You know, I was talking to one of my friends the other day. She's a trans woman. And she was saying, you know, it's not enough. I'm not trying to defund the police so I can get my ass beat in the street, right? Like, we need to figure out ways to keep each other safe. And that's a real real consideration that we have to make. And so that being said, you know, we're not even close to being the type of society um, that we need to be in order to really live up to the spirit of abolition and the principles of abolition. And I think that's cultural work. We need to examine our own hearts and our own minds, how we feel about each other, how we feel about ourselves, you know, how we feel about the world and really um, figure out how to come together to try to participate more in collective economy, how to trust each other more, how to like lead with those, with those values um, as a society. And so I'll just stop there. Um, but thank you again for having me. Thank you so much, Bianca. That was really, really um, great to hear. And I think especially um, as we are, you know, in the UK sort of, recovering from a really big defeat and sort of it feels a little bit like that relationship between electoral politics and anti-racist grassroots movements you know the, the trust is really broken down in many ways so it's, it's really nice to hear sort of dispatches from somewhere where that relationship um, especially between these new newer politicians and the kind of more grassroots movements are really um, seeming to be much more fruitful than than they were here um, for and I'm sure we'll get into that uh, through the Q&A and also throughout the rest of the, the, the panel. Uh, so coming up now, we have Gargi Bhattacharya, who um, her internet connection is a little bit fuzzy, so we might have to go without any video, but that just means that you can savour her words even more, um, you know, with even more focus. Oh, no, there she is. Hello. Oh, amazing. Okay. Hi, Gargi. Okay. So, yeah, Gargi, take it away. Okay, I can't hear you, so I'm guessing it's time to start talking. <laughs> I'm really sorry, my sound is not working here. Thanks so much for inviting me to this, and I'm sorry to once again be the middle-aged person with the technical difficulties, and if I lean over that much, or you can see my press, I'm going to put it a bit further up, I think. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, I hope very briefly, because I think this is the kind of meeting where most people 
have got things that we're trying to work out together. This is not the kind of meeting where we're trying to tell you a load of answers and then you can go away and kind of revise them till you can save them off pat. Um, as Bianca has already said, there's quite different contexts right now for the US and the UK, and Dahlia did mention it, that really I think it's very hard to imagine alliance building across electoral politics and street politics and especially abolitionist politics right now in the UK. Perhaps other people are going to disagree, but that doesn't feel to me like where we are. And I, you know, I don't mourn that. I just think you, know, you need to know where you're putting your energies and why. But what I do think Black Lives Matter has done for British progressive thinking and the broad left, beyond the left, the people and not strictly the left, but progressive forces of other kinds, has been to centre state violence and state racism back at the um, kind of centre point of our collective political consciousness. And I think that's a really interesting moment. And I've really been thinking about the questions of this event in a slightly different way, not about whether we can find good candidates. Frankly, I don't think that's where Britain is. And also, I don't think Britain's electoral system works around finding a few good candidates. If there's anything we've learned, it's kind of that. But I do think there's something else going on. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think there's an increasing split between the ways in which electoral politics is narrated, especially in the aftermath of the two 2019 election, when there seems to be that unhappy alliance between the street and electoral politics kind of broken apart now. We were always unhappy bedfellows. It feels like not much going on between us at all right now. But in that space where people are trying to imagine other ways of living, not beyond parliamentary politics, but kind of just aside from parliamentary politics, at a moment when the British state is so actively neglectful, happy to say, you lot go off and die, happy to say, we are not going to do anything, we're going to hide, we're not going to follow our own rules. In that moment, there's something else happening amongst us, amongst us as comrades, about how we think about how imagining the next phase can be, about what a better world can be, and what our alliances with each other are. And that's what I think, for Britain, I think the more interesting question. Certainly, I think for a long time, um, British political life operated as if only a few of us thought about race. I mean, I think, from, again, I always say how very old I am. I'm a middle-aged person. For most of my political life, British politics didn't acknowledge issues of race. Even the quite revolutionary left only came to talk about race as something very bad had happened, and sadly, mainly as a kind of recruitment exercise. The idea that understanding the politics of race and state racism might be in the centre of how we think about an emancipatory project for all of us that's recent in this country, in my experience. And it's partly happened through the global mobilizations against state racism epitomized by Black Lives Matter. So it's very hard now to imagine a broad-ranging emancipatory politics, including the politics of the workplace, which doesn't kind of understand something about the job the state does in brutalizing some people more than others of making some people disposable so the rest of us are still frightened, of saying that some lives don't matter. There's been a shift, I think, in popular consciousness to understand that amongst people we might want to work with. Maybe not everyone, but I think it's wider than people acknowledge. Even those stupid kind of statements that all the corporations and all the employers are making about 
Black Lives Matter. Of course, they're venal and insincere, but they're also a kind of recognition of a change in the temperature. Something else is going on. Even if they don't believe it, they think they're speaking to someone. And that someone is everyone else, all of our neighbours, people who aren't even on the left yet. And I think that's quite exciting moment to try and understand what's going on with that. And what is it about the radicalisation around state racism that makes something new happen? New street politics, a new articulation of the um, associations between racism and class politics and labour politics and climate politics. All of that seems kind of up for grabs for us now. And I hope that some of the conversation we have will be about that. And I kind of think the one thing that I wanted to say that I hope um, other people will talk about, and I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to switch off my, put on my scud frock, not realising that it would be so busty. And now I'm going to have to switch off my picture again after I finish speaking. But the thing that I think I'd really like to talk to other people about more broadly are the ways in which Black Lives Matter doesn't represent a moment of alliance politics. Black Lives Matter represents something about an expansive claim that can include us all. That it's not about saying Black Lives Matter, oh, I'm going behind, I'm being a good ally. It's something about saying Black Lives Matter centres the role of state violence and racism in this particular moment of historically precise crisis. Everyone's living through crisis always, but for us, our moment's crisis, there's something in that antagonism, that street antagonism, that mass mobilisation, that generational shift that says, when we talk about state racism and violence, we're telling you something about where the fault lines of capital are now. And that means all of you. That when you learn something about policing, you're learning something about how capital remakes itself. You're learning something about how the capitalist state has remade itself in this moment of wherever we are, late, 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 late capitalism. Me and Dahlia in a book where I was laughing about how many lates we can get in before capitalism. But that, there's something instructive about that because it's a, an emancipatory project for all of us by centering what it means to challenge and dismantle the violence of the state, which is articulated as a racist violence, but articulated as a racist violence to remind us of the violence of state, state activity at this moment of crisis. And I think that's that's, I think, a better question. Well, it's a question I want to talk about, so I hope some of you will want to talk about it as well. And I hope now I'm going to switch off my camera so that I can hear what everyone else has got to say. Thank you so much, Gargi. Um, that was, again, I think also a really interesting way, you know, of looking at how that relationship to electoral politics has is really very different at this particular moment. Um, in the US and the UK. And, and I really hope that we can have some conversations, especially in the comments, um, about what that means sort of going going forward strategically. Um, so I'm going to bring in our last speaker. Um, Annie, are you there? Or Annie? Yeah, ah, amazing. Okay. So, um, yeah, take it away, Annie. <laughs> Hi guys, um, I'm here. I apologize, I'm a bit frazzled. I've just put a very cranky baby to sleep. Um, so um, I'm coming at this, I think, from quite a similar perspective to Gargi, and it was really um, great to hear from Bianca at the beginning because, yeah, we are in a really strange time in the UK. Um, I guess the starting point for me would be that at the beginning of this year, everybody was 
sort of really low depressed after the experience of the 2019 election. Um, and at that point, nobody could have foreseen that something which happened thousands of miles away in America would spark one of the most, well, would spark the most, well, there's a Guardian article about it, and by Amna Modin, um, the most widespread um, protests in the UK in centuries. Um, I think that's cause for excitement. I think that's cause for optimism, but I think that can only transform itself into an effective politics um, when we learn some of the lessons that we needed to learn from the last few years. Um, so a couple of things I wanted to talk about. I think Gargi was really um, right when she said, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, it's telling us something not just about the experience of black people, but it's telling us something about all of us. And I think what's central to that is that in the UK from 2015 to 2019, we labored under the assumption that, oh my God, that was an unintentional pun. Um, we labored on the assumption that uh, the biggest threat that Corbyn posed was the threat of anti-austerity politics. And that's just not the case. Um, in reality, if we looked at the attacks on Corbyn, most of them were centered around the question of anti-racism and also anti-imperialism. And I'm not saying that just to be trite, I'm saying it because it tells us something about the way that capital has organized itself in um, the last few decades, that race has become one of the most important fault lines um, of politics, where politics elsewhere, politics around um, money, around the economy has been displaced, um, and Oh, sorry. Uh, where politics uh, around uh, uh, austerity has been displaced or neutered. Um, you see, for example, the uh, Tory government um, committing not to um, impose austerity in the aftermath of the uh, of COVID. Um, a lot of our language gets stolen from us, but the one thing that can't be um, is the language of anti-racism. And I'll talk a bit more about why that's the case. So I think from that we should take Firstly, that um, race is central to how we should understand um, power um, in contemporary politics. And it's not simply something, as Gargi mentioned, to recruit people to our organizations, to recruit people to a socialist platform, but actually decades of organizing in the 20th century showed us that actually it's central if we want to be effective in targeting the state or if we want to be effective in resisting state power. I think the second thing that we need to learn is to treat electoral politics as a vehicle and not a driver. What do I mean by this? For all of my life, political life, one of the mantras of um, politics has been, if you don't vote, then you are losing your right to a say. Um, one of the mantras, well, if you don't vote, you're losing your right to say. If you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain. And what we're coming to understand is in the massive mobilizations driven by young people, we've never really had a problem of apathy. I think what we've had is a problem of despondence. And what we've had is a generation of people who've been cut out of electoral politics, don't see themselves um, in electoral politics, but do have a desire for change. And I think the role of the left in that instance then is to come in and show, build the institutions and the infrastructure that Bianca talked about in terms of showing young people that there is 
an alternative way in terms of showing young people that the vote isn't the only way in which you can affect politics. And I think that's been one of the most inspirational lessons that we've gotten, um, one of the most inspirational lessons that we've gotten from what's going on in America. I think the other thing is, when we talk about electoral politics, um, I think that carries the weight of uh, these certain assumptions about A, who the electorate is, um, B, who, uh, how the electorate thinks. And I think that has been really effective in terms of building some kind of mythologies around the left, whereby people feel like there are certain concessions that we just have to make. Uh, we just have to make a concession around um, race. We have to make concessions around imperialism. We have to make concessions around migrants because if we don't make concessions, then we won't be able to do all of these other amazing things. Right? We won't be able to um, expand the welfare state. We won't be able to improve NH the NHS. And I think one of the lessons that we've also learned is um, that actually the electorate is changeable. Um, in 2017, going into the election or going into the, in the period leading up to the call, calling of the election, there was no sense in which there was a hope for Labour to gain any seats, right? We were expecting a massacre. Um, and I think one of the things maybe which has been clouded um, since the election last year is the reality that it was conversations with people. It was going out and door knocking. It was mobilization. It was using people power um, that, was able to shift the electorate, right? Um, the electorate is comprised of people. Um, those people are um, people we can speak to, people we can change. And I think at the crux of that is a sense in which um, if we're going to build a politics of transformation, if we're really trying to transform the world, we also have to believe that people can be transformed. We also have to believe that the most racist person can be transformed um, through the experience of a particular kind of politics, right? And so when we uh, when we move back into periods of despondence and we lose sight of that, I think that is a deep risk for us. Um, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna leave it there for now, and then um, hopefully come back on some more of those points um, in the questions. But I'm really excited to be having this uh, this conversation, um, and thank you to everybody. Thank you so much, Annie. It's really horrible not being able to like applaud when these amazing talks are done and feel everyone just being like, yeah, yeah. Like when people in the comments are kind of expressing that. So that's good at least. Um, so yeah, so um, as we're just collating some questions, um, I have a couple that I would really like to know what the speakers, um, how the speakers sort of think about that. Um, so I'll ask those as we're kind of collating some of the questions. Um, so I think that, um, you know, one thing that has sort of really um, come to the fore um, is this sense of particularly in the UK, um, you know, of left electoral politics sort of really missing the mark um, on political power and the kind of necessity and especially like what kind of communities you need to mobilise and have invested in your project in order to win through an insurgent campaign. Um, and often taking for granted, actually, um, you know, working class communities of colour, that they will vote for them because the alternative is always um, so much worse. So an example is Biden's, you know, if you don't vote for me, then you ain't black. 
um, and also with C Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, um, the biggest concession that we saw was around policing, around, you know, actually not only not arguing for against, you know, for sort of like a, in a critique of the police, but actually arguing that we needed to fund it more than the Conservatives funded the police and also the, the border industry. Um, but then a few months later, we see, you know, the biggest multiracial mobilization of working class people happening around that very issue that we concede that, you know, the Labour Party, Jeremy's Labour Party conceded under. So I think in that context of that feeling taken for granted, um, and especially I'd like to hear from you as well, Bianca, um, in terms of how this is sort of working in the US, in terms of that, that tradition of being taken for granted by the kind of centre-left parties and even within insurgent campaigns within those centre-left parties, um, how can we both sort of like work within electoral politics or work sort of in awareness of electoral politics whilst also knowing um, sort of that, that history? In other words, like how do we not only sort of um, think about our own relationship to electoral politics, but think about what we even want electoral politics' relationship to be to be with us as sort of anti-racist organisers. Um, I think, Bianca, is it okay if I bring you in for to answer that first question? Just because I feel like we want to hear some, some optimism about um, how it's going for you guys. <laughs> Take myself off mute. Okay, um, sure. So the question about what the in the context of being feeling like we're being taken for granted. I mean, I think that people have felt like that in the United States for so long, particularly by Democrats. Um, they, you know, black women make up the largest, you know, electoral um, part of the Democrats. Um, they vote at higher rates than anybody else, um, and they they are the strongest supporters. Um, but so many times what it's looked like here to, to address their concerns has just been to put black faces in high places, which now I feel like we're realizing the limits of, like representation is definitely necessary and it's important. And it's sad that in 2020, we're still talking about a first black whoever, right? In whatever city um, around this country, but that is where we're at, right? And so I think that as that change starts to happen, then we can get into the deeper analysis of like, it's not just, putting a black woman as a mayor, right, of Chicago. It's the fact that, you know, Lori Lightfoot wants to like close community schools, close schools in some of the poorest districts um, in favor of opening up police academies so that people can become police officers. Like that in and of itself, like examining people on, on their actual policy and where they stand and not just on their identity, I feel like is a journey that we're taking right now as a country. And I think that you see a lot of that, which it's really promising with even the um, nomination of Kamala Harris, you know, as the first black woman to become the vice president. We all, you know, feel, wanna feel good about that but we can't because you know she's top cop and we know that she doesn't stand with us on the issues. And I think that seeing the lack of support for um, Kamala Harris, although we do need that, we know that we need to get Trump out in November, like that goes without saying, but this is just to that point is like, now we have to hold our nose and vote. You know, would, we should be excited for this black woman, but we can't be, um, she's not on our side. And I think that those deeper questions and like people starting to really question, is it just, is it enough that she's a black woman? It's not. And I think that we are, you know, there as a country and we'll see what happens um, here in November. But I just want to talk about why I really love doing politics on a local level and why I love doing politics um, in the context of being accountable to a collective or a group. 
the Democratic Socialists of America, you know, we have a lot of autonomy. We're a big tent organization, um, multi-tendency organization. We all don't agree on all of the things, but that's okay because we find ways to consolidate our resources and small resources and our small power to make significant changes. And so when we're looking local for local races, we're looking for number one, can we find a candidate? And that's oftentimes the hardest thing because we're trying to retrain people what it means to be a politician. Like it doesn't mean that you need to go to law school. It doesn't mean that you need to put on a suit every day. It doesn't mean that you need to be the most well-spoken in the room. But for us, what it means is that you share our analysis and our theory of change in the world, that you're committing to anti-capitalist you know, values, that you're committing to anti-racist values, and that you're going to use your power, your platform, your position, if given, right, to do everything you can to push that change and to help us. And so um, I feel like being able to operate on a local level, once you find a candidate that's good, a working class candidate, has been really great because we don't have to decide. Like we don't, we, we can decide like this race is not worth our time. And that's okay because we're not the machine and we don't feel compelled to do all of the things, right? We know that we can't do all of the things. We are allowed to be principled. We're allowed to pick the underdog and stay with the underdog and say, this is not even about winning because we're not even really running electoral, you know, in these elections all the time to win. Now we've won and it feels amazing, right? And now we need to have a conversation about what it looks like to hold those people accountable to the collective, right? Because there's really no way to do that again. Sometimes I'm like, we just need to primary somebody that we put in office just to prove that it's not about an individual or a personality. Um, but it really is about the work, about the movement, about the collective and about all of our collective goals. And so I'm really blessed to be able to just like speak, you know, through my heavy with my chest, say who I support, say what I stand on issues of imperialism. You know, recently um, we just really got rammed. Um, I'll just say real quick um, in New York City, two things that came out with us, you know, that we had to work through. Number one was black politicians that were establishment politicians, black women telling us that defund the police was a colonizer demand, that DSA was a white organization and that we didn't have the um, authority to call for the defunding of the police um, because we weren't of those communities according to them and really trying to like weaponize their identity even against people, black and brown people that are on the left because there's just not enough of us and so they can erase this so easily. This is number one and so we had to like really go to even more with them publicly in a way that we felt weird about because you know in black and brown communities we're about like respecting our elders, waiting your turn, you know being, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable for us and we know that you know even though these people don't agree, you know, with us on the issues, they have to deal with like so much like vitriol and racism and hatred and misogyny, you know, from all sides. And so it's this instinct that we want to support them and we want to protect them and shield them from that. But we also want to hold them accountable and tell the truth um, about what they're doing. And so I see, you know, all of these things ha happening. I would say recently we got in trouble for BDS. One of our, we have a candidate questionnaire when you want to run for office here in New York City. There's a long questionnaire, it's like over a hundred questions. One of them is, you know, will you do support BDS? Um, and will you uh, not go to Israel? <laughs> like really actually boycott Israel? And, you know, some we 
there was like some significant outcry about that question, saying that we were anti-Semitic, um, saying, you know, trying to pit us as the uh, the enemy of the Jewish community, even though we have many Jewish comrades. And so it's just like, we're working through those things, but those are the kinds of things that come up whenever you have like a well-oiled established machine in power who can weaponize all these arms of identity at any given time. And what we, that's why we can't play that same game of like identity and like, you know, personalities, we can't play that game. We really have to just be principled. This is principled struggle um, and, and really be able to and be able to stand in firmly in what we believe in, what, in what we believe in, what we're trying to change and to use it as a way to get our message across. Like it's okay. We ran a, gov a, gov a gubernatorial candidate, um, Cynthia Nixon from governor years ago, long shot. She was never going to beat Cuomo. We never thought she was going to beat Cuomo. Sorry for watching with Cynthia, but we didn't. But we said this is a really important race for us to be involved in. And this is a way that if she's going to carry our message, that we can get our ideas front and center and we're able to do that effectively. And that's the win, right? Not the fact that she got the governor's seat. Thank you so much, Bianca. I think we also like have really been moving through, I think, um, I would say some something of a contradiction that for a long time uh, representation was kind of the main framework through which we were able to articulate our our politics or you know and obviously we tried we, we did things outside of that but it was all always kind of the thing that we were told was it's okay we're going to diversify whatever and now we're sort of moving through that contradiction of, of you know, representation is, is nowhere near enough. And sometimes it can, if it's in the wrong place, it can be actually quite damaging. So that's a really um, interesting thing to hear from your, your perspective. Um, Gargi, can I bring you in to, to, um, to also maybe pitch into that question as well? Absolutely. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all good. Yes, excellent. Right. Um, Again, I'm going to say a bit of historical stuff about Britain because I'm a kind of living history person. But how I think electoral politics has played black and brown communities in the last 30 or 40 years in this country has really relied on a way of thinking of communities as discrete, as based around quite static ideas of ethnicity with clear boundaries between groups of people and by kind of sanctifying certain people to speak for us. Everyone kind of knows about that stuff. And that's like the generation before me. It comes from a kind of um, first generation migrant way of building organizational spaces and interacting with the local and the national state through those conduits of your local organization. And your local organization is often your religious organization, or if not, it's a breath away from that. You can see that what's happened through that is that when we've been given previously a kind of electoral nod, it's been around really quite culturally conservative claims. They're not claims that don't exist in the community, but they're like almost our easiest claims, the ones around cultural recognition, the ones around um, small amounts of space in localities. And I have to say that's also about historically what was needed when. But they're all based around an idea that Oh, Bengalis, they want this. Speak to Mr. Head Bengali. Jamaicans, they want this. You know, go this place. That way of organising. And I don't think that any of the main electoral parties have yet understood that that won't run in the same way anymore. 
one of the things I think has happened despite them, partly because of mobilising around state violence, but also because other things happen in people's lives, is that you cannot speak to black and brown communities electorally in that country anymore. The Labour Party clearly tries to keep doing that, but I don't think that's reaching any younger people. And younger is even like under 40, perhaps even under 50. So there's something else going on around how people are articulating their experience of racism and looking at what electoral politics is doing. So I think there's a space for us in Britain to try and organise around what would be a non-community, discrete communities focus of mobilising to make anti-racist claims, not least because everyone who's not already well into middle age is already living like that. And I think that's the kind of alliance already seeing in the streets around police violence and other state violences, also actually around the violence of the border. And that there's something that can't be captured by the, oh, let me have tea with someone who wears a turban and someone who does this and someone who does that. Which I think is how, sadly, both the Labour leadership and certainly the Tory leadership is still playing it. But I don't think that that's so solid anymore. And I think part of our job is to open up that fissure some more so that that idea of speaking for communities and their most conservative claims can't be the end of electoral claims for anti-racists. You know, I always feel very hopeful. Things are never as stable as the dominant people think. So it's kind of those bits of uncertainty, that's our opening. And that's me right. done. I should yeah. say that, yeah. no gestures. <laughs> Um, so I have like one more question that um, I'm going to ask before I move on to um, the commenters' questions, of which there are lots of great ones. Um, so, um, so when you look at the history of, of anti-racist movements, both in the UK and in, in the US, um, it feels like, and I don't know if maybe this is me romanticizing the past, but it feels like there is kind of more of a connection to the impacts of imperialism abroad. You know, we both, whether you're in the US or, or in the UK, you are, we are living in, we are operating and organizing from the center of historic and contemporary empires. And that implicates us um, and gives us a certain kind of like position that maybe we don't reflect on um, as much. Uh, so thinking about, you know, historically the Black Panther Party and the kind of influence of connecting with, you know, the Algerian um, anti-liberation like, struggles and how that kind of was really an ex a knowledge and strategic exchange and you know obviously here with you know our the relationship to to the empire and how um, the presence of people of color in this country means that we have uh, that sort of uh, connection always to what is happening uh, abroad and I think despite us being more connected than we've ever been um, you know through through the internet etc we seem to have, we seem to be really working within the nation state as our main frontier. Um, why do you think that, like, do you agree that, that, that that's kind of what, what is happening now? And, and why do you think that is what's, what's ha that has changed? And how do we recover an internationalist approach while still, you know, working within the frontiers that we've, we've kind of, and the sort of agents of change, whether it's, you know, the state or well, not, I don't think it's an agent of change, but, you know, vehicles like electoral politics. How do we kind of reconcile that and recover that sort of internationalist conception of what we're fighting for? 
So um, I'll start with you, Annie, um, if that's okay. Okay, I remembered to unmute myself now. Um, so I definitely have been thinking about that, um, Dahlia. I think in the last couple of, I mean, I can't really speak to the historical perspective from a personal experience, but um, certainly in my research, I think one of the things which is interesting is seeing in the late 70s through the 80s and producing the world that we have now, a retreat of anti-racist horizons, or I should put it as a retreat of anti-imperialist anti horizons into anti-racist horizons. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that, you know, 40, 50 years ago, because we had a large, vibrant left, uh, which was speaking to questions of imperialism and connecting them to the domestic experience. So for example, the Panthers, um, as you mentioned, um, had an analysis of black America as a colony within the mother country. So an analysis of black America as experiencing the same processes of colonization, um, the policing, et cetera, that were being experienced by people and the brute, uh, who were experiencing the brute force of imperialism abroad. I think part of that has been yeah, the collapse of the left as a sort of significant force in um, uh, in national politics. But I think also um, part of that has been the way in which, I mean, if we have a structural analysis of the way that the oppressive, uh, oppressive uh, structures, the way that neoliberalism has shaped us as beings, um, we can see how material, um, so, you know, the uh, experience of, uh, neoliberalism in the 80s um, uh, as something which was foisted um, upon not just um, people in the global south but also um, within the west. Um, the experience of the consolidation of politics um, in the west around a centrism which increasingly narrowed the scope of what was seen as ex acceptable politics. Um, suddenly because there was so little it seemed to fight for people's horizons became narrower and narrower and it became you know if only we could just get some black faces in power, if only we could just get some, you know, uh, anti-racist or uh, subconscious bias or implicit bias training for police officers, then the world would be better. And I think that part of the impact of that has been to um, lessen our capacity to cut through what has been pushed upon us as the discrete identities that um, Gaudi talks about, in a sense that when our horizons are so narrow, what we think of as us fighting for doesn't seem worth it. Somebody asked me a few a while ago, um, you know, if uh, white people have all this privilege, um, then why on earth would they want to forego their privilege and build a new world? And the response I would give or have given um, is that, you know, whether or not there is a relative privilege to whiteness, from a transformation of the way that the world works, we have all the world to gain, right? Um, and I think a retreat from the international into the national has coincided with people not believing that or understanding the gravity of that um, in the same way. Um, I think the other thing to note is that the way in which politics works at the moment, we live in an ironic moment where, you know, 60, 70 years ago, you didn't have 
the ability to just log on to Twitter and see what was happening around the world. But weirdly, that generation seemed to be more global than we are in the way that they think. I think we only really experience the or understand the struggles that are happening outside of Britain and the US in like moments in which it becomes front page news. I think what we need to do as the left um, is develop and cultivate habits of connecting with, building links with, building alliances with. So for example, the experience of BLM and the Dream Defenders when they went on that trip to Palestine, those kind of material connections that can't be replaced simply by conversations on Twitter need to also be a focus of the left as well. I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Annie. Um, Bianca, I'll bring you in next, if that's okay. Great. Is the same question to me? Yes, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to repeat it or? No, it's okay. I think I got the direct idea. Yeah, I think this was the, some of the hardest, you know, things to think of, you know, when I was listening to Annie, you know, speak about the fact that there were so much international solidarity, you know, in the 60s and 70s and how it really died. I'm like actually thinking about that was around the time that I think that capitalism became like truly uh, global and unregulated on a different uh, level, um, particularly here in the United States. And so um, I think that certainly has something to do with it. Um, and I also feel like people realize the limitations of the black power and civil rights movement, um, Pro and you know, obviously other government um, ways, you know, to break up the momentum and organizing and really make an example out of so many of those freedom fighters um, that were doing that work back then. Uh, but I also, I have to say that I am, you know, it's one of the hardest things to figure out as a person on the left, a person that was new to the left, trying to figure out what could I possibly do that would have an impact on my comrades, you know, across the water, um, you know, like how can we connect these struggles and make it more meaningful than just like a solidarity picture, you know, or even an event where people who already agree with us come and we talk to one another. And I think all of those things are definitely necessary, but to Annie's point, we do need more um, examples of like real working class people from the United States and, and, and from other countries visiting real working class people who are doing that. I find that the kind of folks who are able to do these kind of international, you know, exchanges and meet and greets are oftentimes, and no offense, you know, very well educated, you know, and a particular socioeconomic status and may even give off, you know, you may not even think there was poverty in some of these countries based on the folks, you know, that are going to represent. And so I really do think like taking the NGO factor, you know, they've got, kind of gotten this area dominated about what international exchange looks like. We've got to be a lot better about that. One of the things that came out of even us here in Occupy City Hall, which is I would say is like one of like number one, we were always trying to figure out ways like to bring in like the store the narratives from the UK and having, you know, you all's protests and like, you know, in solidarity with people in Palestine who are also, you know, protesting for Black Lives Matter and for liberation and trying to connect those dots for people. And so, you know, one of the uh, high moments of Occupy City Hall, we were having a standoff with the police and we were taking over one police plaza, which is like one of their main headquarters um, and had crowds of people outside and they actually uh, took down the American flag and put up the Palestinian flag. Um, and, and that is promising to me. That's thousands of people, right? Cheering for the Palestinian flag, cheering, you know, for that struggle and understanding that this is all connected. We were also um, so like 
you know, met up with some Chilean comrades who were talking to us about the occupation that they having in Chile. Right now they're having a struggle around their own constitution and the possibility that, um, you know, they're going to be able to vote to rewrite their constitution. I think that's super dope. I actually heard, um, you know, like one protester in Minnesota on a video say, we're out here to demand a new constitution. We need to, you know, portray the constitution, but then we also need to change it and make it more inclusive for people who look like us, right? And I think that's such a strong demand. And even if it's not coming from like a collective or it doesn't have a lot of momentum right now, seeing the comrades in Chile being able to occupy and struggle around such a transformational demand has been really strong. They call themselves the Primera Linea. They're the first line of protesters. They keep the other protesters safe and they also make it their business to break curfew to go outside, to confront the police at every cost and to make sure that the momentum, you know, stays, you know, in the midst of this global pandemic and COVID. And so I'm really like, I, I know I'm here as the optimist and um, Gargi's probably gonna come and like lay down all the truth. Um, but here I, I, I have to say we could do a whole lot better. Um, I think global is organized, uh, capitalism is globalized organ uh, globally and we have to keep up. They're like, way ahead of us they're able to even adjust their messages even in black lives matter you know like they can make the black square or say you know we're committed to diversity training or we're committed you know to having this much of our people this much of our board be you know black and brown folks but you know why don't we as the left think that we need to adjust anything that we're doing when capitalism is in such a strong position and they still see the utility in that is beyond me but we got to do better um and so I'm really, I'm really encouraged by even these conversations happening and, and, and I want to continue to figure out ways that we can support each other and really lift up the global struggle against state violence. Thank you, Bianca. I def definitely that that point about how, you know, capitalists really know how to do global solidarity uh, very, very well with, with one another. And we sort of um, are, are way behind in that. And I also think one thing that has been really concerning to me has been actually that the far right have become a lot more effective at kind of building those networks between each other, um, particularly across Europe and, and North America. Um, so really, you know, we, we, have, we have to really up our game if we're going to um, sort of outflank that. Um, so, Gargi, I'm going to bring you in to answer that that question as well, just on um, the international question of internationalism. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry, Bianca, you think that I'm misery guts. Please don't mistake being old and knackered for being miserable. I'm very optimistic and I take so much energy from younger activists and what is happening. It's all opening up. I know every generation feels like it's all opening up, but... It's true, there are these fissures which we are all entering into of all generations, and it's all up for grabs. And I do think that there's also something about, we forget how quickly we've come so far, even in terms of popular narrative. I've said to lots of people that even 10 years ago, you could hardly say capitalism in any, in any public forum, including on the left, only on the very revolutionary left, you'd quite say to each other oh yes capitalism is a problem there's a whole anti-capitalist movement happening then but it's not seeped into all the other spaces now that's absolutely central to how people speak even capitalists have learned how to pretend they're embarrassed about being capitalist and talking about caring capitalism or you know kind of corporate responsibility that's partly a sign of us moving the goalposts 
And I do think that we're also better at being internationalists than we realise, but we've lost some of our languages. And we also need to rebuild some new languages, don't we, of what, what is internationalist solidarity, not only in the anti-colonial moment, but now in this new kind of moment of um, imperial violence. How can we build across that? How can we use some of these terrible techniques of having to meet remotely to allow us to be in the moment instantaneously um, having those conversations? That's suddenly possible. You could imagine an international strand in the world transform next year, couldn't you? That Because now we're all used to doing this, which we were not before. So I think there's something opening up there. But it's true, we need to build on it a bit more and also to remember that earlier moment we're talking about was very much peopled by people who themselves were core to the anti-colonial struggles of their back homes. It's, it, they were a generation who had feet in more than one camp, didn't they? They were either pushed out of places or mobile for different reasons, not in their control, and went back and forth and struggled in those ways. Things are a little bit different now because of things around bordering, about containment, about struggles which are anti-colonial, but perhaps not nationalist in the way perhaps the idea of nation is not even available or it's not the right frame for everyone who's struggling in an anti-colonial context now so there's something that we all need to learn to adapt with each other but i can't imagine that that's not almost on the cards for some of the reasons that bianca is saying there's a kind of anti-imperialist common sense that's floating around in these spaces of hope and opportunity. It's not quite got a whole story with it. Maybe people aren't all reading the same books, but people are getting something about it. So I think that's something to build on and to think about how we can build on that and maybe not build on it in the way that the NGO style of politics does, is that we will sit and say, oh, how sad your life is so sad and we'll listen to you. But instead about thinking about simultaneous parallel struggles in many places. Which, which all of the speakers have said is almost where we're at. That's almost happening. So what could we do together to just push it forward a little bit more? And that's me done again. Sorry, I can't see me step away. So you don't know. Now I'm done. Thank you so much, uh, Gargi. There's so much um, conversation and like and, and enthusiasm in the comments for, for, for the chats that are happening right now. So I'm going to go to the comments now to get our next um, questions. Uh, so Maxine Sadza talks about, is picking up off, I think, what um, Annie was saying about this idea that in order to believe in transformation, we have to be able to believe that people can be transformed. Um, she asks, yes, I do agree that people can be persuaded to change their views, and that can be done via campaigns. But how do we counter jingoism and nationalism that the Tories focus on to engage the electorate? So um, Annie, shall I go with should we go to you first? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to be really annoying and use an example that I always use. Um, so there's this video on YouTube. It's called American Revolution 2 um, with Bobby Lee. And it's a panther going in to organize a group of um, poor whites um, from uptown who used the Confederate flag as their um, symbol. Um, and Bobby Lee is a member of, was a member of the Black Panther Party. And what's so striking about that video is the minute they stop talking about race, you know, they 
push that question to the side and he just asks them, what's going on in your life? The stories they start telling are exactly the same stories that the Panthers were organizing people in Chicago around um, beforehand. So stories of police brutality, um, stories of uh, really bad housing, um, stories of poverty. And the point is that part of the Part of the impact of conceptualizing ourselves or understanding ourselves as these discrete identities has been to assume that people who we don't know very much about aren't interested in or having the same experiences as we are. Um, and that enables um, capital to make us think that we're existing in silos and to make us think that what's happening to us is unique to us. When the reality is actually, when you push the abstractions aside, I noticed somebody made a comment about abstractions like nationalism. When you push abstractions aside and you ask people what's going on in your life, what are the things that worry you, what are the things that concern you, you'll find we actually have a lot more in common than we think. Um, and I think that's what the 2017 manifesto was able to capture from the Labour Party. Um, and that's why it was um, so it managed to cut through in the way that it did. Because aside from any kind of, you know, disdain that people might have for minorities or any kind of um, traction that nationalism can get, first order questions, concerns, problems are always centered around things that happen in people's day-to-day -day lives. And if you can touch on that, if you can speak to that, then I think you can move beyond the, you know, divisions which have been constructed between us. Mm. Yeah, Bianca, would you want to come back on that as well to sort of talk talk about that from from your perspective in the US? Obviously, that jingoism definitely exists in, in the US as well right now and sort of has been uh, a really key organizing principle of Trump's popularity. And I'm sure he has all the aims. I'm sure he's going to continue with that same strategy in the, the upcoming uh, election. So would you like to give us a little bit of your insight from, from your position as well about how, from your experience, um, that sort of countering of jingoism and that sort of uh, racial um, identity politics that is mobilised by, you know, the right, how we can, can push the electorate, the parts of the electorate that really appeal to that, but who might have the same class interests as working class black and brown people, um, how do we kind of counter that in through our, through our organizing? I agree with Annie. I think people can be transformed. And I think it's really, for me, education, that's the way that I, that I um, counter that. As I mentioned, I come out of the labor movement. The American labor movement has many of those same elements of jingoism and nationalism um, amongst its members. Uh, and not always like a really pretty history um, on race but that's the truth, right? And part of what I do is I talk to people, not about race, but sometimes about race, um, but about economics. And I talk to them about um, CEO to average worker pay and say, okay, well, you know, you believe in this labor movement. Um, what does that actually mean? And who makes up the labor movement? And how is this nationalism or this racism that you're displaying right now, um, this American flag, patriotism crap that you're displaying right now, how is it harming our ability to have solidarity as like working class people? And I think oftentimes people do the opposite where they wanna not talk about race and say those are like 
um, you know, things that, you know, that's too much division. It, it causes too many issues. We just want to stick to the, you know, the, the facts at hand. We just want to stick to the issues and just fight around these issues, fighting the boss, et cetera. But it's like, actually, we do ourselves a really big disservice. We need to be talking to those people about how they can come over um, to this side and about how they're actually harming the labor movement um, with those views. The other thing I'll say is that um, last year I went on Fox News um, and it was a personal decision. In the same moments that you know Elizabeth Warren and others were saying that they wouldn't go on Fox News because um, they didn't, you know, want to give kind of like any platform or shine to you know the the, the news station. We know it's the largest um, news station here in the United States. They have the largest viewership of any other news station. They're um, if you're not familiar with Fox News, um, they're disgusting um, and 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 racist, and they play into all the jingoism and nationalism and you know, all of the isms. Um, but I made a decision to go on Fox News um, with a very, with a lot of preparation. We did um, a town hall on capitalism versus socialism. And I spoke on the socialism side against their like Fox and Friends people. And one of the reasons that I did that is because believe it or not, Fox view, Fox has the most viewers, but they also, their viewers are more likely to vote for Bernie Sanders at the time that he was running than anyone else. And I think that there is, um, like we leave stuff on the table when we just don't want to talk to people who we assume are different or, you know, we assume, you know, have malicious intent and many of them do. You know, obviously we've seen, you know, just the disgusting vitriol being spewed by some of these people, you know, even most recently with the shooter, you know, up in Kenosha. I mean, this is all, you know, completely disgusting and I don't want to downplay that, but I think, you know, I just always come back to this uh, experience that I had personally, um, which was I was in a union drive in Mississippi, which is the very conservative South and um, very poor South. And um, there I was door knocking for the union drive and there was a Confederate flag and a Klan flag outside of the door. And I didn't want to knock on the door, but I was like, I have to knock on everybody's door. And my partner was pushing me to do it. We were scared. They answered the door with a shotgun. Then they invited us in for a lemonade and let us do our spiel. So it's like, okay, do you hate us or do you not hate us? Are you confused? You know, I've talked, spoken to people who've been raised in this type of culture and environment. And what they say is that they wanted to get far away from it, but also so much of it is like hive mind in the same way. Like they have a collective, you know, they feel like they have a community. There's a lot of fear and hate and things that, you know, drive these folks. And so I, I think that they, we do have a lot in common and we just have to keep trying to have those conversations, figure out who the twos are. That's um, union speak. The ones are with us. The twos can be convinced, the threes we leave alone. I think there are way more twos than there are threes. Yeah, that's so, that's really interesting to hear. And and you have both sort of, I'm gonna actually, before I bring Gargi in, I'm gonna bring in um, a question that came in the comments that's really related to this. And um, uh, Bianca and Annie kind of already answered it um, to an extent in their, their answer. So before I bring you in, Gargi, I'm going to just add a little bit here, um, which is, does anybody have experience of projects or organizing formats that aim to organize and create more white anti-racists? There are some areas in the UK with few people of color and stuck in a culture war. Um, is Fred Hampton's approach relevant? So. Okay. Hmm. I'm going to start by going back to what Annie was saying about you're not a progressive if you don't think people can be transformed. Transforming the world is transforming ourselves, isn't it? And each other. You know, 
I'm not hoping that in the world where I'm free that I'm still like working through the night and knackered all the time and all the, the other things that are in my life. It's trans transformational for me and for others. And that the wages of whiteness, of course, exist, but they're poor substitute for becoming human. The wages of whiteness say to white people, the best you can hope for is that your life is at least in your imagination slightly less shitty than these other people's. It's not doesn't even manage that a lot of the time. But it's far away from saying your life will be your own and free and adventurous and full of joy and everything a human being can be. That has to be the prize. And we need to think about ways of organizing that articulate that prize to all different kinds of people. And I have been running with this thing that it's a good job you can't see me because it's really making people annoyed when I say it elsewhere. But I'll say it here. But I wonder if, as anti-racists, we need to stop talking about anti-racism as the core of our politics or our claims and instead embed what it means to do anti-racism in something which talks about justice, freedom, mutuality, liberation. Of course, you can't do any of those things without killing the beast of racism, but it makes it a slightly different project than what the project of anti-racism has become. And I know that some other people have put in the comments, how do we distinguish ourselves from those corporate performances of anti-racism from the black square folk? And I think what makes it different for us is it's not just today's brand for us. It's part of the way of being that can make us all human. And actually, I think you can do anti-racist politics without talking about race at all. And perhaps that's what people are meaning when they talk about the Fred Hampton model. What would it take for us all to be free? Certainly a state which doesn't kill people. Certainly a, a people-led challenge to the forces of violence that degrade all our lives. Certainly ways of seeing our commonality rather than a kind of false um, identification with the powerful who never see us. These things are kind of common across many groups of people. And I think, I always think they're there, they're available. Of course, there's challenges to articulating them. But um, people are not resistant to that story. It's about how we make sure that conversation happens in all the places it needs to happen with the partners it needs to happen with. And a place where, frankly, most people have to spend all of their waking hours just trying to put food on the table. That's a big challenge for us, that the conversations for how we can imagine our shared humanness are limited by the material constraints of staying alive. But that's common for all of us. And again, I'm stepping away now, so I'm finished. Thank you so much. So um, we have uh, two more questions uh, in, the, in the chat that I'm gonna sort of put together. Uh, and then, so I'll ask them both together and then you guys can just answer them uh, together as well. Um, so the first one is, uh, Gargi sort of touched on that, but um, I guess it's uh, looking at sort of how there's, you know, been a scramble amongst corporations, especially um, to sort of show themselves as, as amenable to the Black Lives Matter message. So, you know, Nike and Colin Kaepernick, you know, um, the, that sort of advertising campaign, or I recently saw um, a billboard that Uber did um, that just said, if you tolerate racism, delete Uber. And my work actually looks at how the platform economy exploits black and brown workers. So that was quite a um, gross thing to see. 
Um, so I guess, you know, and someone else has mentioned here, um, you know, when you look at sort of corporate and centrist anti-racism, sort of trying to crowd out leftist anti-racism and shift the conversation away from structural issues, um, what should our strategy be around that? Should it be one of disengagement, uh, sort of dismissal, or is it something that we should sort of be actively engaging with? And then we have another one from Theodora Polenta, um, which says that the state is characterized by biosurveillance, police violence, prison industrial complex and institutional racism. Should Labour, um, or I feel maybe um, that question could also be the Democrats, um, if anti-racist, recalibrate its position against the state? Um, so, Annie, I'll start with you, um, if that's OK. Um, give the other two a little bit of a break. <laughs> Those are the questions. Um, so on the first question, I guess what I would say is, um, it's really funny to see, I mean, uh, Bianca said something uh, very early on, which is that it shows that our messaging is working. Um, so that's a good thing. I think it's good to see that the bounds of what have been conceptualized as acceptable are changing um, in some ways, in some ways not, um, but broadly in our direction. But I think one of the, you know, going back to that conversation about um, internationalism, one of the really big opportunities here when these corporations come out is to use it as an entry point into talking about an internationalist politics. So Nike can come out and say Black Lives Matter, Adidas comes out, says Black Lives Matter, but who makes the clothes that they're selling? Who are they exploiting for their profit? Those are questions about international structures of race rather than simply um, a sort of flat national framework. And I think the ability to invisibilize or render invisible um, those dynamics of exploitation is a form of blackwashing. Um, and I think it's really important for us to call that out. I think the second, uh, on the second question in terms of the relationship of the Labour Party to the state, um, a lot of the powers that the Tories are using now are powers that were given to the state and deep state by the Labour Party. Um, that's something we have to reckon with. Um, that's something we have to think through, um, especially as we understand our relationship to the Labour Party itself, but also our relationship to electoral politics. And I think part of the problem is that the question of national security um, is a question that the left hasn't historically done well at finding an answer to. Um, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is that um, in the last ditch attacks against Corbyn in the leadership um, election, the first leadership election in 2015, you had all these um, female candidates or women candidates um, coming to the fore saying, you know, Corbyn, you wouldn't press the red button. You wouldn't bomb people back use second strike capabilities with the nuclear weapons. Um, and I think one central aspect to being able to create the space for labor, a uh, left labor, um, if that is gonna be possible anytime soon, uh, to recalibrate its relationship to the state or its um, attitude to the state and state power is to start pushing back on arguments like that, is to start trying to get people to reconceptualize what security looks like, what safeness looks like, um, and reconceptualize what security, uh, what community is. 
Who are we protecting ourselves from? How do we relate to the rest of the world? And I think those are questions that we do really need to do some thinking around. And I don't think um, we've done enough um, yet. I'll leave it there because I'm sure that um, Gavi and um, Bianca are going to say everything else that I um, was thinking. But yeah, those are the two sort of things that strike me first based on those questions. Thank you, Annie. Um, Bianca, shall we go to you next? Sure. I forgot the second question, but I'm good. <laughs> Can I remind you of it? So the second question um, was around, um, so it was the state is um, characterized by police violence, prison industrial complex, institutional racism. The question says should labor, but I guess it could be for, you know, the Democrats or the kind of progressive wing of the Democrats. Um, should it recalibrate its position against or towards the state? So in my, uh, my position is that the Democrats in my uh, context are the state. <laughs> um, and so I don't feel like that you can pull them apart. I mean, uh, I, I, I think that's the simplest way to put it. The other thing I'll say is about corporations co-opting BLM. I think it's the same thing. Should I be talking about this and presenting this as um, a matter of individual versus collective or structural solutions, right? And so the individual you know, corporation, and I agree with everything that Annie said about, you know, Amazon. I mean, how few people are in the streets because they're upset with the inequality, um, the racial violence, you know, they're sick of the murder um, with no accountability, but they're also in the streets because our government has completely botched the response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, they're also in the streets because they see the, the, the big contradictions and, you know, Jeff Bezos running ads to say how happy Amazon workers are to be able to serve all of us um, during this time while not giving hazard pay, while not, you know, giving sick leave, you know, while not even providing like the most basic standard of living for his employees that I'm sure mostly are black and brown. And as a matter of fact, we know that even some employees in the Amazon warehouse here in Staten Island were fired for speaking out against, you know, in the very beginning of the pandemic, the fact that they didn't have masks, they didn't have hand sanitizer, people were catching the virus on the line and the company was saying absolutely nothing to people and it was just spreading. Um, and so we know, and, it was, and those workers were fired in, in, in retaliation for speaking up and trying to form a union and trying to fight back against that. So how infuriating it is for you to be called a national hero through the media, on commercials, through, with elected officials, it's through your boss, and then them not actually give you what you actually need to survive and thrive like during this pandemic and keep you and your family safe. So I, I really do feel like, this is about, you know, exposing those contradictions, exposing individual solutions like arrest the cops who uh, murdered Breonna Taylor. We have to understand that we're making those demands because of the current system that we live in, but that like black lives are still going to matter whether they arrest those murderers or not. Right. And like them arresting for killers is not going to take me out of the streets because that doesn't spell justice to all of us. And what we're really trying to look for is structural and systemic justice, structural equality. We're looking for equity in this conversation, not just for you to say something nice, not for you to just bow in kente cloth like you see our Congress members. It's so embarrassing bowing in kente cloth, but can't even pass a second stimulus check, let alone a policy that would benefit black and brown communities that are really hurting. Um, and so I just think that continuing, we should use every opportunity that we can to like expose those contradictions um, as much as possible and 
and really steer people towards understanding the difference between these individualistic types of solutions, these band-aids and reforms, and something that's like about a world transformed or recreating society and really um, having systemic, um, fighting for systemic change. And, 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 that, and that includes economics as well. And so, yeah, I agree with everything that Annie said and I'll leave it there. Amazing. Thanks, Bianca. So for our final comments, shall we um, go to Gargi before we, and we're going to make it just on time. So that's great. <laughs> you just asked me to talk because we cut out for a moment. Yes, I did. <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. right, sorry. Okay, right. um, okay, I'll try and be quick because I know it's really time to go. Um, again, for the British context, I'd just say, as well as rethinking what the national state is, the, the pandemic has remade people's sense of their localities and mutuality and non-mutuality within their localities. And that there's a whole battle to be waged in this country about what the role of the local state is. There's certainly interventions that can be made. You don't have to wait for the next general election. It's not even about who's elected, that there's kind of spaces in that about what the infrastructure of the state means to people in their everyday lives and it's not always the national state and many of the things that we think about both in terms of penality and in terms of support happen locally in terms of the structures of UK government so I think there's there's a return to that conversation that needs to be had and again showing my age I'm sorry I'm always talking about the past I've come to that stage but the generation just above me through the long Thatcher years I'm a child through Thatcherism come of age just as she ends um, redirected energies to what could be done in the local state. So for London, that's the GLA years, but it's also in the kind of remaking of other key British cities around a local agenda that can make wins for people's everyday lives through using some kinds of accommodations of local infrastructure. So we also kind of expand, need to expand what we think of in the state in different ways. And I think people have already said what we ought to do about corporate blackwashing. It's an opportunity, isn't it? If these people have got the platforms, then it's an opportunity to push our analysis a little bit further, to push the contradictions a little bit further. And actually, I think lots of those statements have expanded the ability of lots of different people to talk about things such as labour conditions, to talk about, um, and transnationally to talk about labour conditions. You know, there's a whole kind of now unstoppable conversation about how rubbish working conditions here are also based in rubbish working conditions there about commodity chains who would have thought it that you know now talk about commodity chains and mainstream news programs and lots of people know what you mean all of those things are an opportunity for us every time they come into our terrain we get to talk some more and that has to be part of the game as well and i'm done and it's only three minutes past <laughs> Thank you so much, Gargi, and thank you so much to all of our, our panellists. It's it's sad that we couldn't be there together in person, but um, judging from the comments section, it sounds like everyone really gained um, something from that. Um, I also think, you know, that the what I really got from that was that it can often feel like we have so far to go, but in many ways, we've also come so far and so many parts of this conversation and the ways that we talk about anti-capitalism and anti-racism um, would not have happened in a for, in a format like this or in a in a platform like this, you know, five years ago. So uh, 
demands like defund the police. I never thought I'd see something like that, let alone, you know, in the middle of what feels like a very reactionary time. So organizing works, um, this kind of work has its impact. And um, yeah, so thank you so much to all of the panelists for for talking us through that. And I know that if you, um, if in the comments, there's a link there that TWT have posted, um, which if you join the community link, um, you can continue this discussion um, amongst yourselves, which I really hope that you do. And be sure to keep in touch with the work that TWT do if, and any other local organization that, that might be relevant to this. Um, to continue that organizing work because as we can see from the talks that we've had today um, it does bear fruit even if it's quite a long way down the road so thank you very much to all of our panelists and I hope you all have a really great Sunday evening view the full TWT 20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org